You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We want you to feel confident about investing so that you can make your money work just as hard as you do. Learn the ropes without the jargon at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Thanks so much for joining me today. I have been talking a lot lately about Women With Money, my most recent book. But as we were pulling together today's show, I went back, I flashed back to the research because one of the things that I did when I was trying to figure out what actually belonged in that book was just ask a whole bunch of women, hundreds of women, what they wanted from their money. And one of the things that I heard again and again and again was this concept of legacy. And that's a word that means very different things to different people. For some, it's charity. It's giving to causes that you believe in. For others, it's instilling values in our loved ones, making sure that they and we are remembered when we're gone. And that act of remembering is so important. New data from a a firm called Story Terrace shows that just one in three Americans, 34%, which I think is a big number in this case, say that there are heroes in their family that will soon be lost because they're not being shared. They're not being talked about. They're not being documented. Loss is not something we talk often enough about here at Her Money, which is one reason why I am so happy to be able to welcome today's guest to the show. Allison Gilbert is an Emmy-winning journalist, and she's the author of Past and Present, P-A-S-S-E-D and Present, Keeping Memories of Loved Ones Alive. Hi, Allison. Hey, Jean. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. I am so happy to be here. We're happy to have you here. Loss has been an ongoing subject for you for at least the past 15 going on 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to it? Yeah, um, it was very personal. Um, My mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer um, when I was pretty young, and she died right after college. So I was just beginning to launch into my career. She died when I was 25. So that was before I was married and had kids of my own and really still had all those young adult, I'm not yet launched questions for her. And she was a powerhouse. House. She was a working woman. She owned and operated the largest um, executive search firm owned and operated by women in the country. And so she was someone who I really admired mm-hmm. as a working mom. And so I needed to have this template um, continue. I wasn't done. Um, and then a few years after that, it really felt like whiplash. My father um, passed away um, also from cancer. And oh. so it left me as a young adult, but rudderless without my parents as guides. And that's what started me on the journey of really exploring what this can mean, not just to me, but helping other people make sense of their losses too. First of all, I'm so sorry. I mean, I I think about my son who's 25 called me the other night because he 
was fostering a dog and had decided he was giving up the dog and was taking it to its new home. And he was just shaky and he didn't know if he could do it. And, you know, I was happy to be able to have that conversation with him at that point. I I think there's always opportunity to impart lessons to our kids. I have, you know, uh, two older teenagers now, and I feel like, you know, when they're 25, like you just said about Jake, I feel like they're still going to want to ask questions. I still want to ask my parents questions, and I'm almost 50. You know, I don't think it ends. And I think that what we need to do that builds our resilience is a imagine, I really think, what would our parents have said and what are the guideposts that they left in their wake? And I really do think that some of the lessons that I've been able to use in the silence of my parents today has come from how I can look back and see how they modeled their life as an indicator of what I can be doing or should be doing. And then sometimes the liberating factor is too how I can do things differently as well, because it's not just... Um, rosy, right? Sometimes you want to pivot and do something completely different. I've heard past and present described as a how-to manual. How-to what? How to remember our loved ones. Um, The reason why I wrote the book, and it contains 85 practical ways to remember, honor, celebrate um, our loved ones, really how to do those things. There's more that we can do than just going to a cemetery or lighting a candle. And all those things are great, um, but I wanted more. And what I mean by that is it wasn't just for me. It was how could I make my parents real for the two children who didn't have their maternal grandparents, meaning my own children. I wanted them to really understand and value and appreciate all those things that came from the Gilbert side of the family and not just my husband's side of the family. And not that there's anything wrong with my husband's side of the family. And of course, they're listening. So I love you so much. But there are different values. There are different qualities. And I wanted to make sure those were paramount. as much as I could as my children were growing and are still growing. So I felt this vacuum of how to make sure that they could know who their, you know, maternal grandparents are, because it's not just were, are, they still are their maternal grandparents. I think just that, even that quick change of tense, it validates that these relationships are still really important. When you look at the 85 different lessons, 85 different exercises, which ones emerge as the most effective? Which have been the best in terms of helping your kids understand who their grandparents are? I'm going to answer that with two um, thoughts. One is that underlying every one of the ideas is this really important message that I hope everyone takes away, hopefully from your podcast, which is that I think there's something called Passive mourning, M O U R I N G, right? And with an, with an N. N. I think, I think, yeah, throw I, an N in the middle. I forgot yeah. the N, <laughs> uh, where we are generally passive recipients of support when someone we love passes away. You know, people know to bake a cake or come over if it's a shiva or a wake. They kind of know how to rally around and give you that scaffolding of support when someone dies. I think what happens later is that that piece of remembering, that really is up to you. Yeah, You can't be passive anymore. So the real pivot comes to you have to be active about remembering. So shifting from passive mourning to active remembering. And so the 85 ideas is really about how do you take ownership 
of making sure those stories endure and how to make sure those memories live on in perpetuity. So one of my most favorite ideas, um, actually, I saw unfold in front of my eyes. I thought it was just so brilliant. Um, After my father passed away and my parents had long been divorced since I was really young, my stepmother got the most incredibly thoughtful gift. And this is a great idea. If you're listening, you haven't suffered a loss, but you want to be a really awesome friend to somebody else, even a coworker. She got a wicker basket. And inside the wicker basket were 63 daffodil bulbs. Because my father was 63 when he died. Wow. And so the goal was for, of course, my stepmother to have 63 you know, just celebrations of each year of my father's life. But it wasn't meant to be this kind of horrible gift where she had to plant these on her own. Like, that would just be, like, not a nice gift, right? To give someone such a horribly, you know, like a labor-filled gift. The goal was to share that process and to invite friends and family over and crack open an opportunity where we can eat, drink, have a good time, plant the daffodil bulbs, and then share stories about her husband, my father, in a celebratory way. And I think that's a great way of sharing stories and making it something that kids want to do, right? And so they feel like they're learning without realizing that they're learning at the Mm -hmm. same time. And it's kind of hidden within this kind of fun activity. And I think we have to remember that we have to repeat those stories, that our kids, because they weren't there, one time may not be enough, and they like hearing them again and again. There's a a famous story about my father, who passed away about 15 years ago, giving my dog a shower. I don't know what Grover had done, but he had gone out. He had he had gone out, and, and this, these were in the days I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia. The dog was allowed to just run on the grounds of this big boys' school that we actually lived on. And how great that his on. name was Grover. Grover. You know, that was my father, too, because when we got him from the pound, I was going to name him Rover, and my father said, oh, no, just give him some personality and put a G on there. So... So he got completely muddy or something, and my father put on his bathing suit, got in the stall shower with the dog, and proceeded to, like, I love give it. him give him a shower and the dog just kept his paws up on the glass door the entire <laughs> let me out, the entire let me out. time like let me, let me out and my kids at their ages now, still want to hear that story from my mother. So I think... Well, because there's humor, right? So humorous stories, I think, make a big difference, right? Things that have, you know, sensory um, attributes, I think, get also remembered well. But I'll, I'll, I'll raise you one story, which is... It's how we talk also that really matters. And what I mean by this is when I talk to my children about their grandparents, I am very very much aware of how I talk about them. And what I mean by that is I never say as much as I can you know, remember to my mom and my dad. I will always say your grandma and your grandfather ah, interesting. because it orients that relationship to them and it makes it more tangible to what they would have missed or what they still have at their fingertips, it makes it really about them. And as we all know, even kids when they're really young, they're self-centered by nature. And that's not bad. That's just developmentally. Kids like to do things that revolve around them. So if you can make stories about their grandparents, I think that's really effective. And it's free. Like, it just it just makes you choose your language just a little bit differently. I actually want to turn to 
the money and the belongings. Yeah. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. You don't have to know all the answers when it comes to your financial future, but an important question to ask yourself is what do you want from your money? What are your financial goals? No matter where we're meeting you on your financial journey, Fidelity is here to help you reach those goals faster. It starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, we'll work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. Discuss your goals, see where you stand, and get help taking the next steps at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are back talking with Allison Gilbert, author of Past and Present. Sometimes when money is passed down, Often, when money is passed down after somebody dies, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that money. And you either do things that you later wish you hadn't, or you find yourself tied in knots and unable to do anything at all. How did you deal with this, and how do you help people deal with this? I think a really good school of thought that I think many experts agree to is that nothing has to be done today, tomorrow, the next day after a loss. You can really have some breathing room. You can wait six months, nine months, 12 months. It's really, there's nothing, the sky is not going to fall, meaning that if you are feeling overwhelmed by a home and you shared that with your spouse and it's feeling very emotional, you don't have to sell it the next day. You can, you know, wait till the um, emotions aren't so raw. And so I would say the first step is really to just take a breath. You're going through a lot. And the importance of bringing in an advisor, whether or not it's someone who is related to you or maybe it's someone, you know, you have a financial advisor at Fidelity or, you know, an, another place, I think it's really important to bring in some expertise that is really more neutral, who can really perhaps see things with a bigger picture perspective and is not so full of this kind of rush of emotion that we all have after a loss. Yeah, I I agree with that, actually. I think getting a little bit of air between what happened and then what you do next is important. Well, one really important thing even about possessions, even clothes. I remember after my mother died, you know, I was 25 and my mom was 57. And I just, I at the same time, it sounds like really kind of a conflicting thing. And it was. That's why it was so hard. I wanted to keep her entire wardrobe and, you know, have her clothes and have her dresses and have her scarves. But I was a 25-year-old woman then dressing up as a 57-year-old woman. I mean, it's kind of like looking back now, I was stuck. And I did start keeping a lot and then over time started really being able to purge. And I think that having the goal of over time whittling things down was much more um, calming to me than having to give everything away all at once. It felt like I was being stripped of these linkages to my mom. Can I confess something? Yes. So I said my dad died 15 years ago, and my mother, she had his suits. I mean, he was a real, he loved clothes. Oh, my God. (laughs) And he was a great dresser. And my mother had his suits and ties and things like that for about two years, and then she just couldn't do it anymore. 
they're now in my house. And I can't All get, of them. I can't get rid of them. Do you know I mean, what I did with my dad's ties? My dad was also a dapper dresser. He was an architect, and so he was all about style. So I took all of his ties where he had hundreds of them because that was like his calling card. And I am not Martha Stewart. I am not very talented, but I know where to go to get these things done. I had his ties turned into a quilt. Oh, wow. By a quilter. And so when my kids were really young, I could point to patterns or textures or colors. And I could remember in very, very small fragments stories that I remembered their grandpa wearing that tie. And over time, the stories can get more elaborate. So you yeah. can always do fun things with these I, possessions. I love, I, I actually love that idea because I, although my husband, when we got married, he wore one of my dad's ties. Oh, and, I love that. And when Jake was bar mitzvahed, he wore one. But nobody wears ties anymore. <laughs> so they're just sitting in the closet. Well, you know, there's a whole chapter in Past and Present called Repurpose with Purpose. And this is like my Marie Kondo chapter, right? Which is very much, you know, possessions can weigh us down. And there's liberation in really either repurposing or getting rid of. To get rid of something feels like a drain and you feel guilt. If you give things away to a museum or a historical society or a VFW or someone's, you know, school, and then you can make those possessions that you no longer want meaningful in that story of your loved one, but somebody else will value it, I think that's a really great opportunity. Yeah, I've been thinking about the suits and trying to find some costume shop that would like them, right? That's because, a great idea. Because, I mean, they, at this point, they're 15 years old. They belong in Guys and Dolls. Or, or, yeah, right? I, mean, I was going to say, <laughs> or it could be a high school theatrical production, yeah. you know. It would be a wonderful way of going back to even your, your dad's high school and making the contribution because they, of course, had a tie to your dad, even differently than you did. So it's a way of also reopening conversations with people who actually remember your dad and value his memory. And how can you do that? And it makes giving things away less guilt-ridden. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just flip the equation in the few minutes that we have left. How do we, at this point, make it easier for our kids and our grandkids to deal with our stuff and to remember us. Well, I think it's really interesting. I think that there is this narrative that um, we don't tell stories and that things are, um, you know, recollections of our ancestors or even more current loved ones are harder to make stick with our families. And I actually think that there's a counter narrative. I think that with digital media, you know, with social media, with the ability to digitize photographs, It's actually more easy than ever to share these stories. And here's just one quick example. If you and your family got together and had a Google Doc, and you could all share recipes about you know, a family recipe that you all don't want to forget, you guys don't have the responsibility of one family member being the repository of family history. Now you can share it if you just have their email address. Wow, I love that. So it's just a matter of like, how can we use what we do anyway? How can we use Facebook? How can we use Instagram? How can we use social media to our advantage? I was going through some photographs of my father and I found one where he was at a wedding, you know, a really long time ago when he was a young man. And I'm like, 
gosh, that looks so familiar. Where does that picture, what does that remind me of? And my son had just gotten his driver's license and he made a really silly face. And I mean, it's silly on his, on his license photo. And I'm like, oh my God, that's his grandfather. And I just used Photoshop and I put the two pictures together so my son could see for himself those physical traits that I see as being the linkages between the generations. But now my son can see it for himself. So how can you use the technology that we have to make these connections stronger? And I think it just takes, again, going back to how we first started. What is our role now? It's to be proactive. So how can we use our phones to snap a picture that's in our photo albums and then obviously upload that to Facebook and invite comments? Ask your family who don't even live near you to, what's your memory of this particular occasion? Amazing. Allison Gilbert, the book is Past and Present, and you can learn more about Allison at allisongilbert.com. Thanks so much for doing this. What fun. Thank you so much, Jean. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Catherine Tuggle from HerMoney.com has joined me in the studio. How are you? Great. How are you? You look so holiday-y today. It's so funny. Becca just told me that I needed to wear this to a holiday party. But now I think I've already I've already ruined it because I've already worn it. No, I think you absolutely. First of all, we are not the Instagram generation. Like, I am not going to say anything and neither are any of your colleagues, right, if you re-wear things. But it's all about the lipstick. The, the lipstick with the dress is just perfect. Thank you. The lipstick yeah. was tough for me. I don't usually go this red. It's very red, but mm-hmm. it's very beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Allison was great. Yes, yeah, she really was. You know, what's so interesting in listening to her is I think my mother does so many of those things just naturally. Like she has always said, your grandmother, your grandfather, not my father. You know, she's always she's always telling stories. She's put stories down on tape so that they're there for the great-grandchildren to listen to. I've done none of this, none of this. So I have to get my act together. I mean, your kids know their grandparents, though. I don't think my daughter remembers my father very well. She was very young when he died. And Jake remembers. And Jake Jake has good memories. And, and I have tried to keep a lot of pictures of them with my father around. But um, I need to tell more stories, clearly. We all do. Yeah, absolutely. Growing up in the South, there's such a rich history of oral tradition down there. I feel like I know so many stories of people who were around in the 1800s, but they're just quick glimpses, right? If you really want to paint a picture of somebody and who they are, you have to go into a lot of detail. You have to write it down. Yeah. I suspect you're really good at this, though, because one of the things that I learned about you when we first started working together is that you write letters. I do. I keep the post office in business. Yeah. Yeah, and you write letters to people just so they get letters. Well, it started when I was in college. My grandmother, my mom's mom, couldn't hear very well. So the phone was not always a great option, and of course she didn't do email. So the only way to really reach her was via post. So I started sending little postcards, the kind that you see for free at the counter at a cafe or for free at a restaurant. Just whatever I could find, I'd jot her a little note. And I knew that she loved getting the postcards because she would always comment on it and everything. But when she passed, and I'm going to try not to cry, 
I found a huge binder of all the cards I had ever sent her under her bed, and the binder she had titled Travels with Catherine. Oh, my goodness. Because she felt like she had been there with me everywhere I had ever been from where I had sent her all these postcards. And what a gift. I, after that, I just started sending them to everybody to all the little old ladies in my life, to my friends. Now I send some to my friends' kids. Because when we go to the mailbox, it's just bills. It's and just catalogs. Bills and junk. And when you see a little handwritten envelope in there, it brings you so much joy. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I hope you saved that binder forever. I did. Absolutely. All right. Speaking of mail, what do we have? Our first note comes to us from Amber. She writes... I'm 32 years old and going through a divorce. We have two small children, and we own a house, which is currently on the market. We're hoping to walk away with $3,000 each from the sale of the house after all is said and done. My personal debt includes an auto loan with a balance of $5,000 at 2.94% and a student loan with a balance of $2,600 at 5.25%. My husband carries credit card debt and recently bought a new truck. I do not have the numbers on his debt. I have three retirement accounts, and he does not have any. I make $42,500 a year, and he makes $36,800 a year. My credit score is 782. Would it be best for me to prioritize paying down my debt or saving? I'm hesitant to save because our state will split our finances equally. Please help, and thank you so much for the content you put out. So, Amber... You need to have more information than you have. I am so sorry that you're going through a divorce. I know what that's like. It's awful, especially with young kids. But because the state is going to split your finances equally, they're also going to split your debts equally and your retirement accounts equally. At least that would be my best guess of it from my not legal but previously divorced perspective. And so you need to know what you're looking at. When you say that your husband carries credit card debt and recently bought a new truck, if he's going to keep that truck, then it will likely be his responsibility to pay it off. But if this credit card debt is debt that was incurred while you guys were married, it's very possible that they say that half of that debt is yours to pay off. And so I I really do want to know what you're looking at. Based on your own debts, I would absolutely prioritize saving because the interest rates on your debts are really, really low. And with your credit score, if you wanted to reduce the interest rate on that student loan by refinancing, you probably could very easily do that. Um, But what it doesn't sound like you have is much of an emergency cushion. And when you go to rent your next apartment, when you go to set up utilities, when you go to put the holidays together for your kids, you're going to need some cash. And $3,000 from the sale of the house is, is not enough to build a new life on. So I would prioritize saving at this point. I think it's great that you are continuing to put money in your retirement accounts, but I would just pay these debts off over time because the interest rates are so, so low. And good luck. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, definitely. Our next note comes to us from Callie. She writes, I'm 37, married, and live in Austin, Texas. Lucky girl. My husband and I bought our home in 2018 and have an interest rate of 4.5% on a conventional 20-year loan. 
That was good at the time, but possibly not the greatest deal. With interest rates dropping, I'm wondering if we should refinance specifically to lower the interest rate we pay. Right now, our monthly mortgage payment is right in our budget. The only new details are that, whereas before I made nearly half of our joint income, I have since become a stay-at-home mom. However, my husband has received a significant raise, and we have a very healthy savings rate with very little other debt. We paid off our car and sold an investment property we had a mortgage on. Would it hurt to shop around for a refinance? Would it be worth it to save about half a percentage point given the effort and fees? I think it's absolutely worth shopping around. And the basic rule, Callie, is that if you think you're going to be in the house long enough so that any fees that you pay are made up for by the money that you save over the next couple of years, then refinancing is something that you should absolutely consider. I don't know, however, that you necessarily have to go through a full refi. You bought your home in 2018. It's 2019 now. If you go back to your prior lender and ask about a loan modification rather than a full refi, they may still have all of your paperwork in place and have everything so together that you may be able to just do it again relatively quickly. So I would look at a loan modification first. If that's not possible, refinancing is probably a good move. You're going to have that loan for another 20 years, 19 years. Doing it at 4% rather than at 4.5% sounds pretty good to me. Our last note comes to us from Dee. She says... I'm a 57-year-old woman with three grown kids and have recently gotten engaged and purchased a house with my fiancé. My question concerns life insurance and retirement accounts. His retirement was cut in half due to a divorce. We both have insurance through work at one and a half times our salaries, and between us, we have around $700,000 saved for retirement. My fiancé is asking about what will happen to this money if one of us dies. I would like to give my kids something, and I have a great relationship with all three of my children— However, my fiancé is only on speaking terms with one of his children, his daughter, and his two sons say they want nothing to do with him. How can we leave our money to our children in a way that is fair without causing a strain on our relationship? I raised my children as a single woman alone for most of my adult life, and I want to show my kids it wasn't for nothing. So you need a prenup. Um, and I, it sounds like you're heading very, very quickly toward the author and toward commingling your financial life because you have purchased the house, D, and congratulations on that. But I don't know, of that $700,000, how much is yours? How much is his? It's not ours. At least it's not ours quite yet. And you really should put some legal protections in place so that if half the money is yours, whatever is left at the point where one of you does die is preserved for your kids, um, or that you set it up in some other way that is equitable based on the assets that both of you are bringing to your relationship. I hear a lot of heel dragging when it comes to the topic of prenups. People think they're difficult. They think they're really, really expensive. They think they're going to cause problems in the relationship. 
I have one. I got it when I got married for the second time. My mother has one. She got it when she got married for the second time. They are so not a big deal. So call your divorce attorney. Divorce attorneys, are, if you assuming you still like your divorce attorney, have him call his divorce attorney and just get one of these before you get any closer to the altar. Then you can just put it in a drawer and forget about it. What I don't want to see happen is for your kids to be fighting with him should you die or his kids to be fighting with you should he die because we all know that even kids who say they want absolutely nothing to do with us probably will want something to do with our money. Uh, And so just put this down on paper get it taken care of, and and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. How can people get in touch with us? Write us an email at mailbag at hermoney.com. And if you want to send Catherine an actual letter, she will be happy to receive that too. Absolutely. Lastly, in our Thrive segment today, if your side hustle is draining you or is becoming a chore, there are ways to retain your sanity and your energy while working your side gig. These days, an incredible 45%, that's a huge number, of Americans have side hustles, according to Bankrate. And while it's fine to be all in when you're first starting out, your enthusiasm in those first few months probably should not become your permanent pace. So put pen to paper and decide exactly how much time you're going to dedicate to your side gig. Prioritize what you want to tackle first. Also, Keep an eye out for a mentor or support group. Having a side hustle is not like working two jobs. It is working two jobs. And the time and the effort it takes to succeed doing this is just not something that everyone understands, which is where a strong community can really come in handy. Lastly, make sure you're taking steps to conserve your energy and try to treat that side gig the same way you would with your full-time job. Take breaks for dinner for Netflix, for the gym, and for other things you enjoy. Yes, your side gig is important, but so is stepping away from your work and allowing your mind and body some much-needed downtime. Thank you all so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Allison Gilbert for the great conversation on love, loss, and moving on. I loved her insight. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. I hope you'll join me next week. We'll be kicking off our new year with Julie Morgenstern, best-selling author on time management, organization, and productivity. She's going to tell us all how to kick our careers and our lives into higher gear in 2020. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk soon.